You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. FedEx Chairman and CEO Frederick W. Smith joined the Washington Post Live to discuss business, the economy, and the coronavirus pandemic. Let's listen. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Duffy of the Washington Post. I want to welcome you uh, on behalf of everyone at Washington Post Live and everyone at the Post as we try to cover the corona crisis, coronavirus crisis, uh, and the road to recovery here in the United States and elsewhere. Today we have a special guest, uh, Fred Smith, Chairman and CEO of Federal Express. Uh, Fred uh, thought up uh, the whole idea for Federal Express back when he was in college. He built it from the ground up and he is and has for a long time been chairman and CEO of the company, and we're glad to have him with us today. Thank you for coming, Fred. Glad to be here. We're going to start just by talking about the economy and, and how things stand. How is the freight business, and how has it been since the crisis began? Well, the business is uh, uh, very strong in many ways. Of course, we've had our, our challenges. I think it's important that uh, I say just a a bit about what FedEx does because sometimes that's misunderstood. We pick up and transport packages and freight from every person in the world to every other person in the world, except for the four or five places prohibited by the United States government. So the reason that's important is that people see us in their neighborhoods where we perform business to consumer deliveries but they don't see us uh, moving the defibrillators and the ventilators and the airplane parts and, and things of that nature. So uh, in our international business, uh, it's been quite challenged really since the trade wars began in the spring of, of 2018. We were sort of the first people to, to talk about that and the tremendous pressure on Europe that the uh, dispute with China and the United States caused. Uh, but now, um, with the COVID-19 situation, we're basically operating a, an aluminum highway across the Pacific and from Asia to, to Europe and to a lesser degree across the Atlantic. On a daily basis, we generally have about 15 or 16 flights across both the Pacific and the, and the Atlantic. So in, in that sector, we have flown hundreds and hundreds of flights in and out of China all during this period of time. We first got exposed to this virus in early January because we had about 900 employees in Wuhan. So we've been dealing with it for a long time, but we never see service to, to uh, China. And now we are flying just a prolific amount of flights moving uh, PPE, and uh, all sorts of medical uh, uh, equipment. In fact, we've moved incredibly about 17,000 tons of PPE. So as you've seen, the, the concern about PPE has dissipated a great deal. And a big part of that was the airlift that was put in place by FedEx. We've been the biggest participants, of course, have been others like UPS and Atlas and so forth. Then in the domestic U.S. business, our B2B business, our business-to-business -business, uh, traffic contracted significantly when the lockdowns went in, into place, but it was replaced by enormous amounts of business-to-consumer uh, deliveries. And fortunately, over the last two or three years, we had been leaning into that sector 
significantly, including, for instance, opening up Sunday as a regular delivery day just this past January, which was a very, very good thing that we did. So um, in the freight business, which is also a big part of our, our company, uh, the industrial economy had not been doing very well prior to COVID-19, and it's definitely uh, been, been hit hard. But I would say that we saw the, the lowest point, we believe, in mid-April, and there is a resurgence of some industrial shipping now. China is almost fully back online with enormous backlogs, both to North America and to Asia. So that's sort of a, a recap of what we're seeing in, in broad terms. Thank you. Uh, it, and how, as you look forward, Fred, over the next 18 months, what do you see economically in terms of just your outlook on it at this point? Hard to see, I know. Well, it's very hard to see. And when you have uh, the head of the Federal Reserve yesterday saying he couldn't see, I'm sure they're not going to get out on a limb and, and, uh, and say anything specific. But I, I will make this comment. You know, the United States is a very, very wealthy country. And our ability to put forth these enormous amounts of money in the CARES Act and, and so forth uh, indicate to, to us in the traffic we're seeing there's still a significant amount of industrial activity underway. I mean, it hasn't collapsed, which is what I think a lot of people thought. What's really been hurt are those things where people come close to, together, hospitality, entertainment, uh, travel, uh, hotels, and things of that nature. So I don't know whether it's going to be a U or an L or whatever the case may be, but I'm optimistic that there's enough economic activity that we can build on and assuming that the, the medical folks uh, deal with the, with the disease itself competently, I'm, I'm, a, I'm more optimistic than most. Uh, do you have the equipment you need or to start testing employees on a regular basis? How is the company dealing? Because you have a lot of people who still come into work every day. We um, do. You don't have the kind of business where people can really work at home. Um, so how do you approach the question of uh, testing employees uh, in order to keep them working uh, and keep them safe? Well, as I mentioned, uh, Mike, we got into this thing very early on because we started dealing with it in China in January, and then we started dealing with it in Europe and in February, and then, of course, it became an enormous issue here in, in March. For many years, we've had a very competent medical advisor, Vigilant, who helps us with all kinds of things around the world, not the least important of which is our participation in disasters. That's sort of our main charitable activity. We have the hose in the house if your house catches on fire. So, for instance, in the Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and 2017, we donated 100 wide-body flights. Well, we, we've been dealing with this type of thing of disaster and, and, and uh, floods and earthquakes and so forth. So to pivot over to COVID-19 was not as difficult, perhaps, as some companies had it. And uh, Dr. Eris Osmond, who's the lead doctor, a very impressive resume, helped us to comply with all the CDC and WHO um, uh, regulations or, or 
recommendations. So we have, we have done that. We've spent enormous amounts of money and our procurement people are just real heroes as well because getting masks, getting sanitizer, getting all of the things to, to keep our folks safe because that was our job one, we felt. And again, we began doing that in Wuhan, the epicenter of this thing in January. So we knew how to do it. Uh, I'm sure that there are things that the WHO and CDC wish they had done earlier, but we, we've been able to, to keep up with it pretty well. Uh, as you know, five employees at the Newark hub uh, died of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Have you taken some steps or can you tell us what steps have been taken to keep the workers who are still there um, uh, safe? Well, again, we've done all the things CDC and WHO has recommended in terms of the mask and the sanitizers and the spatial distancing and so forth. Our experience in our newer cub is actually uh, slightly better as best than we can tell and what the community itself is, is uh, experiencing. So obviously our hearts go out to everyone who's been affected by COVID-19. My best friend died of it three weeks ago, so it's, it's hit all of us. But I think as an essential business, there's no way we can be divorced from the community issues that we work in, but I think our folks have done everything humanly possible to keep our, our, our teammates safe. You know, FedEx is a highly automated company to start uh, with. Uh, and, and while machines uh, do break down, they, they don't get sick. Um, it, might one of the outcomes of this crisis be a, a move by uh, other companies to accelerate their automation and, and, and take more workers out of the picture? Is that a concern? You know, I think automation happens on its own pace. Uh, it's been going on a long time. A lot of people talk about, you know, the dispute between China and the United States and China took all the jobs in actual fact, about 75, 80% of them were eliminated by automation. So if you go to one of the FedEx ground facilities, it's incredible because there are no human beings in it. It's all automated. The express operation where you have to interface with an airplane on the ramp, uh, which is what the Newark facility that you were talking about is, that has a bit more manual intensity. And I don't think in the near term there's, there's any way it will be automated. But we have a very, very big effort in terms of robotics and, and automation. And I think it will be gradual and over time, not some revolutionary change. One last question about the workplace. Uh, as you look forward over the next quarter or two, six months, say, are are more American companies going to have to come face to face with testing their own employees if the government doesn't provide enough tests? Is that something you're wrestling with? Well, I wouldn't say we're wrestling with it. We're, we're just acknowledge the fact that we're going to have to provide it. We have uh, great customers like LabCorp and, and Quest, who are the two largest national chains, we were heavily involved with them and the, the task force to get all of the tests early on out and the drive-throughs where we set up special pickup systems and our little sensors to track the specimens and it's expanded and expanded and expanded. So we, we believe we will have to have the capability to monitor anybody that comes in one of our facilities, which we already have in most places. When I walked in today, we have an electronic uh, temperature reader in this little small building I'm in. So 
all of our big facilities, we do temperature testing. If somebody has an issue, we will get them tested right away. Then as we've done everywhere, including at Newark, quarantine folks do contact tracing of their workforce and things of that nature. So yes, everybody that wants to operate in the months ahead, I think is gonna to have to do a lot of that. You're on the president's advisory panel for uh, uh, the economy uh, and the road back. Uh, as you know, the country has lost more than 20 million jobs in April alone. Um, what are you advising the president to do now and, and what has he asked of you? Well, I've just participated on, on the broader uh, group uh, calls. And uh, of course, as you mentioned uh, a moment ago, we are right on the front lines of it. I think the two things that have quite frankly allowed the United States and for that matter, Europe to be more resilient than people thought was just what we're doing right now, modern communications, our IT group, which is fantastic under normal circumstances, just did incredible things by moving thousands of people to a work from home and environment. And so now I, I uh, use Microsoft Teams or, or Zoom or FaceTime every day, two or three times. And now I think the second thing that has allowed us to go forward is the enormous amount of home delivery that we're providing in UPS and, and Amazon, because that's allowed people to live a remarkably unchanged life, except for those social things we talked about a minute ago, like going out to dinner or going to the movies or something like that. So that's why I'm a bit more optimistic, perhaps, than other people are, because we're seeing that economic activity uh, at a very high level continue. As you know, Congress has moved uh, swiftly on three different stimulus packages in the last two months. A fourth looks like it's coming. There's some debate about when. Uh, the president says he's not in a hurry. Uh, the Fed chairman sounded a little more urgent yesterday. Do you have a view on the timing? And uh, this debate looks like it's going to be about state and local governments. Um, they need more help. Well, of course, this, uh, as you mentioned, is uh, the, the fourth, but it is probably the most contentious in terms of a political uh, issue. Uh, early on, we participated in the, I think it was the second bill, which had a lot of support for airlines. It actually had funds available for all cargo operation, the CARES Act. Uh, fortunately, we did not have to avail ourselves of that. We had plenty of credit uh, available to us, and clearly we're managing our cash flows carefully. Uh, we were right in the middle of a major aircraft modernization program, which, which created um, you know, some issues for us, but our CFO and treasurer, we made a debt offering. And uh, so now you get to the point, just as you said, where the biggest issue in this next act is what goes to the states. And there you've got all kinds of political fireworks that uh, I would be crazy to get in the middle of, despite your kind invitation to do so. <laughs> you don't want to be a governor? No, no. I, I tell you, I admire them. Uh, they've done done uh, great work, particularly our governor here in Tennessee, Governor Lee. He's done a good job. You know, you're a fairly conservative guy, Fred, and we are witnessing an enormous amount of government involvement in the economy now. Um, it's government, the Washington's more activist on trade than it's been in a couple of decades. Um, the, Fed chair, the Fed is buying all kinds of securities it's never bought before. 
Um, does this make you feel uncomfortable, a little uncomfortable, uh, or is this a necessary evil? Well, I think it's a necessary evil, but uh, it, it's uh, Keynesian economics on steroids, that's for sure. But at the end of the day, the, the business of America is business, as a former president one time said. That's, that's where all the income comes from. So I, I'm, I'm more optimistic uh, that, that you'll see a lot of uh, progress, a lot of entrepreneurship and invention. The things that come across my desk every day, it's amazing people that have come up with new products and they're trying to sell FedEx. And uh, uh, so I, I think that you've got lots of contentious issues like the Postal Service. And I, I think people forget at great peril that what really made the world wealthy from the end of World War II was opening markets and invention and, and innovation, but opening markets led by the United States. And now the protectionism that we have in this country and the mercantilism that China's demonstrated in the last few years, that to me is the most dangerous thing to get that back in control and recognize that trade is what made the world much richer in 2020 than it was at the end of World War II. Uh, how are you feeling? Are you worried about the phase one deal with China that had been negotiated and then is a little bit uncertain in the view of some people now? Given your perch, what do you uh, think is likely to be the outcome there? Well, we've been in China 35 years. Last week alone, we probably flew 250 to 300 flights into, into China. China constitutes about almost 40% of the world's manufacturing uh, today. What was happening before COVID-19 is most Western companies were bifurcating their supply chains so that they had one supply chain inside China for that enormous market of a billion, 400 million people, but they were diversifying their supply chains outside of China, to Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, of course, in this country, we did USMCA, and we have a significant amount of our supply chain based in, in Mexico and, and China. So I th think it's important as we come out of COVID-19 that whether they can execute exactly on the trade deal that was done or not, that the effort be there on both sides to recognize how important this economic relationship has been to mutual prosperity. And of course, we're very much in favor of re-embracing the TPP and the, the trade agreements with, with Europe, because I think Europe and the United States has to have a bigger marketplace with people from those regions of the world to match up to the internal marketplace of China with a billion, 400 million people. You've been dealing, as you said, with China a long time. How how have they handled their public, <clears throat> their public relations in the midst of this crisis? A lot of Americans don't feel as kindly toward China as they did even a few months ago. Well, there's no question about that. And, and uh, I think China, to some degree, has not helped itself with these wolf warrior uh, diplomatic in initiatives and and things of that nature. But on the other side of the of the coin, I think at the end of the day, when people just really look at it uh, objectively, China will recognize that what made them wealthy was the United States and Europe opening up our markets that allowed them to become such a manufacturing power. 
So the Chinese want for their citizens what we want for our citizens, better prosperity, better, better health. The best way to get that is to get a broader trade agreement rather than to go into another Cold War and try to deal with these issues like the South China Sea, Huawei and so forth diplomatically rather than fighting each other through the media. Can I, can I just try to uh, invite you to be governor for one more question and then we'll, we'll go on to something less political. Um, it, looking back on the last two months, it's clear that the, the Congress decided that it would not subsidize payrolls, you know, it would not help businesses keep people employed. It would, it would, it would create a subsidy essentially for uh, being unemployed. D does that look like a mistake in retrospect? And is it too late to reverse that? Or uh, what do you think? Well, they have a couple of experiments going on because they actually did subsidize businesses to retain employment in the airline industry. So they're keeping people that clearly do not have enough work to do. And come October, there'll be another tranche of assistance to the airlines. On the other side of the coin, as you just mentioned, most of the, of the money has gone to people who have become unemployed. And as many of the Republicans uh, mentioned at the time of the CARES Act, that would be an incentive for people not to come back to work. We've hired tens and tens of thousands of people. And I think to, to some degree that's correct, but the level of unemployment is so great today, I don't think it's a, it's a strategic uh, issue. We've got great people out there on the road. They're, they're just heroes. I get emails and, and uh, talk to people every day that are just so uh, appreciative of all of our employees, lots of vignettes and social media, what our people are doing out there every day. And so I, I think that the, that the unemployment issue may keep us from getting, uh, I mean, the, the payments that you just mentioned might make people reluctant to come be a package handler someplace in certain locations, but overall not that big a deal. Are you hiring, Fred? Oh, prolifically, prolifically. We're adding in our FedEx ground unit, which is the one that does most of the the B2C, about 4,000 drivers a week. So if you want to come work for us, uh, we'll, we'll be glad to take you on. Help wanted. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just to round out the the uh, overseas stuff, I, there's a, a question that's come in from uh, someone who's watching. Mary Jo from Massachusetts asks, uh, given the huge volume of goods FedEx ships from Asia, uh, how will your company keep its pilots safe as they transport uh, freight back and forth? Well, that was a very big issue early on. Uh, we worked with our, our our pilots and the ALPA to come up with a with a protocol. Uh, again, we followed all the CDC, WHO, and FAA guidelines. Uh, one of the most important things I think that happened was actually the the second. Uh, wave of COVID-19 uh, infections in China because they became extremely aggressive on testing pilots. I mean, very aggressive. So we were able to get a small number of the Abbott ID now uh, devices from the uh, from the task force, and we placed them in strategic locations. So we actually test our pilots, which takes about 15 minutes before they go into China. And we have changed, I think, the, the confidence that our folks have going in 
and made their, their families feel better about it. And most importantly, it made the Chinese feel differently about our pilots transiting there. And we have done things that almost are unbelievable in terms of trying to sanitize the airplanes and the vehicles and the operating centers in China. So that's how we've dealt with the issue. Uh, a couple of questions about the post office because they're the other company that comes to my door every day. Um, uh, the president is strange, well, I don't know, strangely, he's very interested in raising postal rates for packages. <coughs> now, he's been quite vocal about this and you know whatever that means for the postal service, what would it mean for FedEx? Well, we've had a very long relationship with the Postal Service, and uh, to some degree, you might call it a cooperation. Uh, we transport in our uh, express system almost all of the priority mail, airport to airport. Postal folks pick it up, give it to us, we transport it, and it's delivered on the other end. That's how you get two-day uh, priority mail. On the other side of the coin, they've had this uh, service where they incent you to give them packages at the post office. That service is called Parcel Select. And we in UPS and uh, Amazon in particular have, have used that in years past. We announced about a year ago now that we would bring that in-house for the simple reason we can do it cheaper than what the Postal Service charges us. So the, the, the problem with the public's understanding of the Postal Service is that they say we're making money on packages but we're losing 77 billion dollars which is what they have lost and a big part of that's our post-retirement health care but it misses the point the postal service is like an airplane and there are some pilots and there's the first class and there's the economy class so what they say is we're making a fortune on our first class passengers that's the package business but we're losing a tremendous amount in our uh, economy class. And by the way, we're gonna not charge the first class passengers anything for the pilots. We're gonna put that all on the economy class. So it's one network, it's one plane. And as the mail gets, gets digitized, just as your newspaper is now digitally offered as we talked about before the show in which I read every day, just as that digitization is taking place in the news business, it is ripping out the heart of the Postal Service by taking the mail that pays for them to make these stops. So if you want to look at it that you're making a lot of money in the first class business on the plane, you can say I'm making money in the package business. That's why the president says if you look at it holistically, they're not charging enough for the package business. But it's the same plane. It's the same network. And it's digitization that's causing the problem. So do you stand to lose if the rates go up, would you say? Say again? Do you stand to gain or lose, if FedEx stand to gain or lose, if, if package rates go up at the Postal Service? I'd, I don't think it will be much of an issue to us one way or another. As I just mentioned to you, their parcel select uh, service, which is where you take volumes of packages to the Postal Service. Our service was called Smart Post. We delivered it to 22,000 post offices, and then they delivered it to home. Now it's cheaper for FedEx Ground to do that ourselves, to have those short haul. On the priority mail business, the Postal Service has a very good package business there, and I don't think that whether they raised it a bit one way or another would be material to us because we carry it on a wholesale basis. 
Thank you for explaining. The, the, tell, before we stop, uh, tell us something about uh, w what it's like to be Fred Smith in Memphis. Where you, how have you spent the last two months? Have you been traveling at all? Do you, are you close to home? Uh, just give us a, a taste of what your life has been like. Well, because of our home situation, I basically have stayed uh, close. Uh, my house is about five minutes from where I'm talking to you from. I've got a little farm that has no purposes in the world other than to glue the world together. We go down there on the weekend some, and I do uh, Microsoft Teams and Zooms, and thank goodness we're able to, to talk to our children and grandchildren through the uh, FaceTime and uh, that's been our world for the last two months. It's our frontline folks that are the heroes out there, I can tell you. They're the ones delivering those packages to your home. Well, thank you for joining us, Fred. Uh, and thank you for your candor today uh, and your good humor and, uh, and the reports from the front lines. Uh, we were grateful to have you. Thanks to everyone for watching today. Please join us next week uh, for a full slate of guests, uh, including next Tuesday when I'll be joined by the CEO of Hilton, Chris Nassetta. And next Wednesday, when our guests will include Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts and the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. On Thursday, we'll hear from President Trump's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, as well as a prominent head fund manager, Ray Diallo. Uh, head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information about other upcoming programs. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Fred, uh, and good day to everyone. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.